Guy Cotter is one of the world's most experienced mountain guides and has scaled Mount Everest five times. Guy took over Adventure Consultants after the tragic deaths of his friends and the company's founders, Gary Ball and Rob Hall. The two men died on different climbing expeditions. Gary Ball on Mount Dalagiri in 1993 and Rob Hall on Everest in 1996. Guy started his guiding career after being approached by Rob, uh, sorry, by Gary Ball in the early 90s. Adventure Consultants has gone on for more than 30 years now to offer guided expeditions to peaks all over the world. Guy Cotter has summited Everest five times. As I said, he scaled seven of the 14 above 8,000 metre peaks. And he's detailed his life in the mountains in a new book, Everest Mountain Guide, The Remarkable Story of a Kiwi Mountaineer. Guy is the son of Ed Cotter, who was a climbing companion of Sir Edmund Hillary's. And Guy Cotter is with us from Wanaka. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. How are you? I am really good, thank you. And I bore people with the same comment every time I talk about Everest. I've climbed that mountain so many times in my mind from reading books. And then the movie came out and sort of took some of the imagination away. But what I can't experience is what life is like above 8,000 metres. What is happening to body and mind? Well, I think the answer to that varies on the individual and how well prepared one is and an individual's personal physiology, how well you do at very high altitude. But in general, uh, effectively, they say above 8,000 metres, you're in the death zone, your body is dying, there's so little oxygen in, in the atmosphere that you're uh, deteriorating at a rapid rate and you can only spend a certain amount of time there. And of course, we do use bottled oxygen, uh, well, most of us do, uh, in order to survive up there. But we know that our time up there is relatively limited. It's limited to the amount of oxygen we've got. And so therefore, when we're up there at very high altitudes, above 8,000 metres, you're normally making an attempt on, on a summit, whether it's Everest or one of the other 8,000ers, uh, and you're just effectively just trying to get up and down the mountain in the time and oxygen that you've got. So the the feeling is that uh, your your body is under pressure the whole time. And we go through acclimatization on the way up the mountain to prepare ourselves for this. But your pulse rate is up. You've got you know lassitude. You can't eat. Uh, there's a lot that's very uncomfortable about it, um, to say the least. You had a bit of anxiety, you're right, before you eventually summited Everest the first time. Can you remember that? You you were wondering whether your body could take it, and of course some can't. Uh, but can you remember that first time and managing uh, those nerves? Yes. yes, Catherine, very vividly. Uh, and that was what was interesting writing the book, is going back there and just remembering it as I was yesterday. And it, it is such a, an amazing sensation to be up there climbing the world's highest mountain. And, of course, we just don't know whether we're going to hit that ceiling where all of a sudden our body doesn't cope with altitude anymore. Uh, and I suppose that's just because I'm actually a naturally cautious person and I was waiting for the onset of high altitude cerebral edema where I would lose my mind and 
throw myself off the side of the mountain sort of thing, but that didn't happen. Uh, luckily, I responded very well to altitude, but I was so caught up in the in the process of climbing the mountain. Uh, of course, I was with my mentors, Rob Hall and Gary Ball, who had already climbed Everest and been there on several expeditions, but I'd never been above 6,200 metres before, so I just didn't really know. But as it turned out, uh, when I climbed the Hillary step I was ahead of the group uh, just preparing the way I got to the Hillary step and I stopped and I waited for everybody so I could help them up and I thought at that time that oh well maybe I am going to make it uh, because up until that time you're so involved with just the process of putting one step in front of the other and being very careful and and just being very conscious of, of where you are so uh, look it was a super exciting time for me to to then go on and meet everybody who'd gone ahead up to the summer and, and to actually stand there. Let's talk about the guiding career because this is um, this is what the, uh, the approach from Gary was in the first instance, was it, where you approached with a view to whether you might want to join this endeavour. How did that start? Well, I'd worked with Gary uh, guiding here in New Zealand and I also was a friend of Rob Hall. We'd done a traverse of the Southern Alps when I was 15, he was 16. So we all had some some history together uh, and I knew that Rob and Gary were going to start doing guided expeditions to Mount Everest, which was a, you know, a very audacious uh, thing to propose because prior to that time, it sort of appeared that only the very best climbers in the world went to Everest and, and here they had this prospect of taking guided clients. Uh, so they realised they had a group of 10 people and they realised that they needed another guide to help them and there were a few prospects around New Zealand, but I was probably you know one of the most active guides in the country at the time, uh, climbing in New Zealand and overseas and I climbed in Himalayas before. Uh, so I got the invite, I got the tap on the shoulder to come along and, and help out. And, you know, I was really, really pleased to be able to do that under the um, under the guise of Rob and Gary, who already had the whole expedition thing dialed. It's very different from just climbing mountains, climbing in the Himalayas and, and running expeditions and, and guiding in that sort of environment is, um, is next level. There are so many more layers to it rather than just putting one foot in front of the other. And, and, and indeed, I look back now and I think that the actual climbing part is the easy part. It's all about the preparation and setting things up for success that, uh, that I learned from Rob and Gary and then I expanded upon uh, after I uh, assumed ownership of, of AC after Rob and Gary were gone. And guiding, looking after other people in that sort of environment is so much more difficult than when you're just trying to look after yourself. Uh, you can't uh, afford to be vulnerable yourself. You're, you're there for everyone else and therefore you've got to dig a lot deeper to do so. And I was just lucky that I had a very extensive guiding career in New Zealand. New Zealand's a very good place for learning how to be a good mountain guide because of the condition of the, the mountains and the weather and all those other factors. So uh, it was it was a great um, learning ground for them moving on to the Himalayas. There's, uh, there's things you can plan for and you write in detail about the details of the logistics, the planning beforehand, coming to judge and understand your clients. But then there's what a mountain will do if it's, if it's of a mind to do it. And you did have a, 
uh, a, a role as it turned out on what we said earlier was one of the deadliest days on Mount Everest and where you lost a friend. You'd already lost Gary three years earlier. Uh, and you write at some length in, in the book about what happened that day. Um, you were near Everest, you were on Everest, different expedition I think, near base camp, and you detail what unfolded from your perspective. We should say Rob Hall died, so did seven others. Um, did you feel like it was important to you or important to mountaineering, the mountaineering record to get across in the book your perspective of what happened? Uh, yes, I, I did feel that because there were a lot of books written just post-96 uh, by various people, and of course the most famous being John Krakow's Into Thin Air that a lot of people have read. And when I read a lot of those accounts, I realised that the word history is his story. And it means that, what I mean by that is that uh, a lot of people actually write themselves up when they are writing a book or in some cases maybe even justifying their own actions. And when I look back at that and those of us who were involved uh, intimately in the Adventure Consultants camp probably felt that some aspects of, of what had gone on were misrepresented or maybe not represented as accurately as, as we might have thought. So uh, I'd always thought it really important to to get something out at some point from a historical point of view so that that could actually go into the mix uh, because this era of high-altitude guiding, you know, only started back then in, in 92. And, and so uh, a lot of water has passed under the bridge, but only 96 has been written about effectively. Uh, and I thought it was important to document what had gone on back then in, in 96, but then also transition through to the modern day. You know, there's a lot going on on Everest. There's a lot of uh, Everest news coming out, and it's sort of a lot of it's clickbait. People love uh, the subject of Everest and everyone's got an opinion and it's not always based on uh, fact and so therefore I wanted to actually drill a bit deeper give a bit more of the background of what actually goes on on expeditions so that people would have a deeper understanding of what it's yeah. uh, what is involved rather than just picking up on the headlines that come through. And I'm keen to come to that uh, in a moment but but <laughs> Given the scale of that day, I'm, I'm interested, and the listeners will be interested just in your experience of it. You were one of those in direct communication with Rob by two-way radio, which I think had been set up. I, I think you'd had a meeting with him. That had been set up long before there was a, there was an issue unfolding. But at what point did you realise, I think you'd come to base camp by this point, there was knowledge that there were problems up there uh, and the weather was turning and everything else. At what point did you realise the scale of what was unfolding? Uh, yes, yeah, so I had had a meeting with Rob. I've been, I was actually there to climb another peak called Mount Pomori, which is very close to Everest. Uh, and I'd been over to visit Rob and the team. We just arrived just as they were about to summit uh, when we were about to start climbing. And I, I went over to visit Rob and the team. And before I left after catching up, Rob said, oh, look, here's a radio, uh, keep in touch because uh, I'd like to be able to talk to someone who's been up here before and who's, um, you know, going to be able to, you know, be an ear on the radio. Uh, 
you know, and I've no idea exactly why he did that, but uh, he, I had the radio. And so when I was climbing on Pomori, I knew it was going to be the summit day for, for Rob and the team. And I was listening in and uh, later in the day, uh, one of my guides that I was with, Chris Dillett, came over to my tent and said, who had been listening to the radio and said, oh, you better listen to this. Things aren't going so well up there. And that's when I started to be very interested in what was going on. And, and I basically listened to um, an epic unfolding and it was kind of a, a very difficult position for me to be in because I couldn't actually physically do anything to help. I wasn't acclimatized enough to even consider going up onto the mountain. Uh, so I just had to listen to all of the events as they unfolded and then try and offer what advice I could to Rob. Um, and then the following day, I went over to Everest Base Camp and caught up with uh, uh, Helen Wilton and Caroline McKenzie, who were running the, the base camp for Robble and assisted them with um, you know the events that transpired after that and it was a, a long ongoing couple of days whilst you know, Rob was trapped on the on the south summit um, there was a lot of lack of communication there were um, the adventure consultants team managed to mostly make it back down to South Coal, but then there was a void of leadership. Um, Rob's assistant guide, Andy Harris, had disappeared. Uh, there was a, a whole lot of information that was coming in from all sorts of different directions because there were a, another dozen or so expeditions on the mountain who all became involved in this. That A lot of them were sitting up there on South Coal waiting to go to the summit as this was unfolding, and uh, some of them chose not to be involved a lot of them just didn't want to offer any help at all they were just focused on their summit whilst other teams were very forthcoming with whatever support was needed so it was a really hard couple of days just watching all of this unfold and, and talking to rob and uh and not being able to you know personally get up there and and, and be of help he couldn't get to the oxygen. He had a client in big trouble whom he would not leave. And you surmise in the book, as others have, come and get the oxygen, come back and help him. But goodness knows what the conditions were like at that time. He was obviously struggling himself. And the bottom line was, um, uh, you know, he, he dies up there. And with time, with the benefit of time, with the benefit of hindsight, what went wrong and what should be learned, what was learned? from that event? Well, with the benefit of time, I mean, that's one of the reasons it's taken me so long to, to get this book out, really, is that, uh, you know, at what point uh, am I judging uh, Rob's decision-making? And, and then later on, and I write about this in the book, that I had to go through the process of, of uh, thinking very deeply about this when I decided that I would carry on uh, with adventure consultants. And it was really important for me to be able to say to prospective clients who were becoming on future trips uh, that, you know, that we had uh, evolved and that the industry was no longer uh, or had learned a lot from these, this particular scenario. And so there was a lot that we changed in future years. We added to it. You've got to remember that 
what Rob and Gary started was, uh, you know, a, a brand new enterprise. And, and, and often people who are starting brand new enterprises, uh, you know, might reach a failure at some point. Uh, and in this case, when you're in such a risky environment, that might lead to, to fatalities. Uh, and that's what happened in this case. Uh, so we transitioned from, if you like, amateur climbing, where everybody's looking after their own self uh, within a group, to this professional guided climbing, where uh, you are assuming uh, responsibility, if you like, for uh, the well-being of people in your teams, and at least doing your best to to ensure that. So, if 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 you like, just to put it in a nutshell. In later years, we we added more Sherpa support. We added more oxygen. We uh, made sure we weren't the first team up the mountain each year. Uh, but what happened in '96 actually caused or uh, enabled the whole industry to grow up. We had all of the other teams who were there at base camp. Some of them also running commercial expeditions for the first time. Uh, we were all competitors prior to that. But what was really amazing was that a lot of people, a lot of these other operators at competitors all came in and, and offered their support and help. And we all learned a lot through that. And I think one of the main things we learned was that when you're actually on the mountain, once you've got all of your clients, you're there, you're climbing, you're no longer competing with each other. We actually all worked out how to support each other on the mountain because it was really important for everybody on the mountain that we were helping each other because effectively that helped all of us anyway. Well, does that mean that you don't see gear go missing or oxygen bottles moved around or indeed has happened to Krakow? Uh, according to your account on this, he's descending. He's got a good survival instinct and he's descending early and has to sit at the top of the step for an hour everyone else is coming up. I mean, do those things still happen? Uh, yes, and 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 more. Um, the the mountain is incredibly busy compared to what it was. You know, we thought when we were summoning Everest in '92, I think there was about thirty six people uh, on the mountain. Um, you know, which seemed like a lot of people, and now there's several hundred. You know, four to five hundred um, foreigners and and their sherpas. Uh, so what's happened in the recent years is that is the ascendancy of the uh, Nepalese operators, who a lot of them, uh, when when I started on Everest, most of them had very low technical standard. Uh, they were not really mountaineers. They were people who worked in the mountains, and that's all changed. And so uh, a lot of them become you know fantastic mountaineers, obviously very strong, uh, but. A lot of them are getting better at decision making, and then they thought, "Well, we're going to cut out the middleman," is what they saw us, uh, and start offering their own expeditions. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of them didn't realise or understand, and a lot of them still don't what guiding is. Uh, there's a very big difference between selling spots on an expedition uh, than there is about making decisions for everybody on the team. And that's why we're seeing a huge amount of fatalities on the mountain these days because people are paying to go with one of these cheap operators uh, and it's usually the people with the least experience going with the cheapest operator and they get into trouble high on the mountain and they uh, fall over and, and there's no help to get them down. Uh, there are also a lot of these operators, uh, 
kind of Ponzi schemes. They, they don't actually charge enough to actually run their expedition, so they're short of oxygen and so on, and, and equipment gets stolen, and we've had um, quite a lot of cases of, of that happening to us, as have a lot of the other operators. So we're dealing with a different issue these days uh, in that we've worked out, I think, overall uh, how to manage the mountain in a lot better way and it's uh, and, and now the issues have, have been with uh, dealing with a number of people. Now that's going to change now that uh, Tibet has opened again, the Chinese have opened up Tibet and over the last few years through COVID all of the people who would have gone and climbed Everest from the north side, the Tibetan side have been on the south side, on the Nepalese side, so uh, they are all next season going to be all going back to the north side. So it's going to reduce uh, the number of people on the south side by about a third. And that will reduce a lot of the pressure, but it won't take away all of the problems. It's a difficult question to ask you. The criticisms of the commodification of climbing Everest, when, when, when you've been part of it to some extent, to part of it to a good extent as part of this guiding company, there's, there's kind of two things. There's the safety aspect of it, the crowding aspect of it, the whole treatment of the mountain and respect for the mountain. Uh, and, and then there's sort of Sir Ed Hillary's perspective and others' perspective. If you can't climb it as a mountaineer, in some instances, if you need to have, um, you know, basically every step of the way up and down managed by someone else, what, what is the point of it? You know, are you really climbing that mountain or another? How do you how do you respond to that kind of philosophy? No, it's a it's a very good question, and it's one that uh, you know I've always asked myself all along as well. Um, now there are a large number of people who uh, are those people you're talking about. They're not really climbers. Uh, a lot of Indians go there because uh, they get a promotion uh, in, if they work for the public service and they get money given to them. Um, you know, similar thing for Chinese coming from the north side. A lot of people are doing it for personal profile. Uh, and then there are the mountaineers. Now, for me, I think what's most important is that, and this is the philosophy that I've always carried through, is that any client climber who comes to climb with us should be prepared before they arrive. They should be guided on the mountain. That's us showing them, you know, the way, how to do it, how to be safe uh, and, and so on, but not doing everything for them because I want people to walk away having felt like they have climbed the mountain, not that Guy Cotter has led them up the mountain and they were just standing in line behind them. And I've also really emphasised us having the right sort of approach with uh, their environmental impact, their social impact and and so on, so that it feels like you're actually part of a really good, well-run team. Now, if you think back to prior to the likes of us turning up there, uh, a lot of the expeditions going to Everest uh, were either national teams where they would just pull in all the best climbers for a, from a country, uh, or they might have been well-sponsored team where one individual gets the sponsorship and then invite, invites other people along. And a lot of these teams were really poorly run. The person who might be the person who could get the sponsorship might not have been the best leader. They might not have been the best uh, mountaineer and decision maker. Same with a lot of the national teams. Uh, there was a lot of very, very bad management going on 
in the name of adventure prior to um, you know the the early nineties, and the fatality rate was incredibly high. And what has happened is that the fatality rate has gone from something like a fifteen percent of people who summited down to about one and a half. And that is because we've been able to uh, provide a level of, if you like, management of security. And that, that's what guiding is doing. You're actually making decisions uh, around safety and you're using very, very, very experienced mountaineers to to be making these decisions. And what's also occurred is that the, the Sherpas have uh, evolved immeasurably and you know, I really enjoy the process of being involved with a great team of Sherpas, a great team of guides, and a great team of clients where we have a great adventure, uh, climb the world's highest mountain. Yes, there's peril, uh, but the uh, accomplishment um, is significant. And I've always believed that you've got to do things in good style. And there's, I, I feel quite irate when I see someone having been dragged up the mountains, you know, with the Sherpas doing everything for everybody, putting their crampons on and so on, uh, and then getting down to Camp 2 on the way down and then calling a helicopter rescue because they just can't be bothered walking back down off the mountain. I mean, that really does wind me up. And I think I see people go, I've climbed Everest, and I look at them and I go, well, you haven't really climbed Everest. Uh, you've just done the least you can so that you can uh, use it as a trophy. And so all I could do over the years is just operate with my own teams and try and set an example for other people to okay. follow. And I think that's why we've been held up as you know one of the, the best operators on the mountain. It's because we've always had that philosophy. Uh, it's not about money like it is now for most of the Nepalese operators who are really just trying to spend as little as possible and make as much as possible. Uh, it's just a business. Whereas to me, it's, uh, it, it's it, you know, going to Mount Everest especially is, um, you know, like, it's like a religion. It's like, uh, you know, going to, um, you know, my, my church, my um, temple and, and, and so on. So it's a, it's a pilgrimage every time and one that, I've always believed, uh, deserves the utmost respect. Guy Cotter, our guest, Mountain Everest Guide is his book, The Remarkable Story of a Kiwi Mountaineer. Uh, just to finish, you also talk about your early climbing days. You were one of that lucky generation that was in the mountains from a young age. You were out in the outdoors, 12 or 13, with your dad, introduced to the mountains young. I'm not sure how much that's happening, quite so much anymore. Uh, but you learnt a lot about your father's own climbing career uh, with the publication of the book, the working on the book, Only Two for Everest, we spoke to journalist Lynn McKinnon about this, and this was about El Ridderford and Ed Cotter. You were, they were all climbing with uh, with Sir Ed before he was Sir Ed and before Everest, and it may have been just a twist of fate or a twist of politics to see your father or see Earl uh, in that first um, team that first summited. But what did you learn about him from the preparation in that book, diary entries that you'd... Uh, never seen before you you described him as being a bit more of a, a loose goose perhaps not careless but a loose goose perhaps than you are but what else did you learn about your father uh, well I, I learned that he achieved a lot at a young age I think mean, he was very humble he was of the I suppose <clears throat> the difference between the 
Canterbury climbers and the Auckland climbers was uh, the Canterbury climbers seemed to be all about the fellowship of the rope uh, rather than tagging summits. Uh, and hence, he didn't push himself onto that Everest expedition after uh, they climbed Mukapabat. Uh, and so, you know, that was just a, an indication of, of what he was like, and, and I think that was one of his great qualities. Um, and I think coming back to what you were saying about me having the opportunity to climb when I was young, I think it's a really serious issue that we've got going on that we're becoming so risk-averse. And as a society, we are being kept away from risk. Our government seems to think it's really important that we uh, uh, don't have any risk. And so people don't know how to deal with risk and people don't know how to deal with hardship when they encounter it. And I, I think it's really important that we keep the door open to us participating in activities that are risky because otherwise we're going to get to the point where nobody knows how to respond or how to manage risk. You know, see that as uh, one of the, the the issues that we're going to face into the future. Guy, thank you. Guy Cotter, the book Everest Mountain Guide is published by Potton and Burton.